church can now leave for children's church. So if you are up through, I think, grade four, you are dismissed if you would like. We're going to have a good time. Uh, The rest of us turned back to the Gospel of John, had a little bit of an excursus and other Gospel passages the last couple weeks, but we are back in John chapter 12, and we are at the very end of Jesus' public ministry. John chapter 12, verses 36, the latter part of John chapter 12, 36b through verse 50, we'll finish out John chapter 12. And I got to tell you, this is a really difficult passage. I mean, this is a very difficult passage um, to the point where when I was coming back and I was beginning to study for this passage, I thought to myself, why, why did I not give this to Tyler or Evan? I mean, that is exactly what often pastors will do. They will take the most difficult passage and say, you know what? I think I'm going to go on vacation. You guys are new in seminary. Go ahead and take it. It'll be great, right? And then I can then, you know, kind of work through um, how they did it well or not. But here's where we are. So we are at a place where we talk about God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, the sinfulness of man, the unbelief of man, and the judgment of God. So think about that. Sovereignty, free will, judgment, unbelief. Woohoo! That's right. Excited, right? That's where we are today. So hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they did still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And we all say, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, here's um, (laughs) what I'm thinking about. Let me just start off um, with, with just a little bit of humor, okay? When you have a hard choice to make, when you have a hard choice to make and you're trying to determine what that choice might be, um, oftentimes it's difficult. Now, let me, let me tell you this. So how do you reconcile competing thoughts? A simple question will often need great discernment and wisdom to answer, such as, you know, God's uh, sovereign, perceptive, and decretive will, as well as man's freedom and responsibility, or how about this one? 
A simple question. Maybe if you're a husband, you've had this one. And your wife comes to you and she, sa- and she says this, what do you think about this dress? Now, this may be a trick question. And if you're a husband, you know that you, first of all, you didn't think that you were going to be tested on this initially. But all of a sudden, you get this question. And it all t- depends on tone. Because if it comes out, what do you think of this dress? You know exactly what you're supposed to say. You're like, I love it. It's amazing, right? But there could be a question that goes like this. What do you think of this dress? And at this point, you're befuddled, you're confused, and you know that there's no right answer. It's very frustrating, but you know that you have to answer. Or, you know, there could be sadness in the tone. Can you believe this dress? At which point you go, yeah, I I can't believe it. I don't understand it. I mean, it's similar, in a similar vein, you know, to dresses, you know, you might you know, when your wife or your spouse says something about haircuts, what do you think of my new haircut? And for me, I always want to say, well, I don't know, but I'm not an expert on hair or any grooming that I need to know. And so, but what I do know is that I love you deeply and I want to live. (laughs) All of those things, right? So wisdom and discernment And we get wisdom and discernment from the Word of God. And so how do we work that out when we have things that are asked of us? So people will come and they'll come to church. They'll come in through the doors and they'll say, well, are you a church that believes that God is sovereign and in control of all things? And we say heartily, amen, yes, we believe that. And people will also come to us and they'll say, but do you believe that man is responsible and that he has to choose? And we go, yes, we believe that. Well, how does that work itself out? Let's look at this text today. Well, when we jump into this text, we see that in the midst of Jesus' miracles, in the midst of you know, those who are blind seeing, but also ultimately his last public miracle in John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus, the, the resurrection of Lazarus, people are now believing And yet, what we find is that there are some who actually saw these miracles, spoke to Lazarus, see blind men who can see, and they say, nope, I'm not going to believe. And all of a sudden, we get into this, in in this particular passage, and, and it says this. And it says in verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now, the first part is from Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord... Who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then in verse 39, it says, Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So here's the the question. How can God hold someone responsible if he is blinding their eyes, that would seem very unfair on God's part, wouldn't it? Well, let me answer this question in this way. Um, let me quote James Boyce, who's a, a hero. Does the word of God teach that men are able to choose God, but that God singles out some whose minds he closes, who therefore do not believe and are therefore damned? Is it this? Or is it that men begin by being unable to choose God? God intervenes graciously to open some eyes to see the truth and embrace it. And as a result, these objects of God's gracious intervention are saved. 
Certainly it is the latter. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. And he pointed that God does draw some in John chapter 6. Consequently, in terms of salvation, it is hardly necessary for God to blind anyone. For we begin blind and come to Christ only when God intervenes to give sight to them. You see, what John is saying in John chapter 9 is we are all like the blind men, blind because of our own sinfulness. He doesn't need to bring blindness about, but rather we are blind and rather we need to see. Our eyes need to be able to be opened. The scales of our eyes need to fall off. The, our hearts of stone need to be replaced with hearts of flesh. You see, if God wishes anyone to go to hell, he needs only to withhold his grace and the individual will go there as the inevitable consequence of his or her, her own negative capabilities. Second, we see that they are already in a state of unbelief. I mean, they're already not believing in Jesus. They've seen the miracles, and so in the midst of their blindness, what we're seeing there is what theologians would call a judicial judgment. God has made a judicial judgment, R.C. Sproul says, against sinful people, and he prevents them from believing as a judgment. He doesn't force them into sin and then doesn't rescue them. He allows them to be turned towards their sin. Let him who is wicked be wicked still. He covers their eyes. I mean, we see this in a similar way in Romans chapter 1. That, that through creation and through general revelation, that certainly the existence of God is apparent to all. And yet God gives them over to the idols of their heart, to false gods, and he allows them to entertain and pursue. You see, when Jesus is saying in John chapter 12, verse 35, just, just prior to this, he says to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. You see, in that passage, Jesus warned his listeners not to reject the light, arguing that if they rejected the light, an even greater darkness than they now knew would come upon them. This is not a darkness that causes unbelief, but rather a darkness that results from it, a darkness that proceeds from this blindness and this unbelief. It is a working out of God's just laws by which faith leads to even greater faith, and unbelief to even greater unbelief. We see that occurring. Those who do not believe in the midst of their unbelief seem like they take it further and further away. And the only way that they can actually believe is if God intervenes and he actually causes something, someone to be born again, to believe and trust in Jesus. Even in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there's this idea that there will be a powerful delusion that the Gentiles will give themselves over to. The Gentile world, because of their unbelief, will be given up to powerful delusions. You see, the unbelief leads to more unbelief, leads to more unbelief, and God allows them to be taken along down this river, this current of unbelief to greater depths of unbelief. And the only rescuing that can happen is if Jesus intervenes and rescues and saves. 
Now the question becomes, and this is a question that we have, why does God not intervene to save all men before they persist in unbelief and enter into greater darkness? Why? Why doesn't God do that? And I gotta tell you, I don't know. I don't know. In Romans chapter 11, verse 34, it says this, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. You see, God has his own plans and he's working all of these things out. And in the midst of this, um, this conundrum, this question that we have, what do we as the people of God rest upon? What do we cling to as the anchor of our soul? And that's quite frankly why I wanted to sing the goodness of Jesus this morning. Because in the midst of questions that are not answered, in the midst of why questions, what we need to be rooted in and firmly planted to is the goodness of Jesus, the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. And we need to say that God is good. And we cling to that. And so as we come to worship, as we come to the text, we, we come with that in mind, that God is good. And in the midst of God being good, in the midst of blinding their hearts and hardening their hearts, what did he accomplish? By hardening and blinding the hearts of the Jews back at that Passover event, he allowed Jesus to go to the cross for our sins. You see, God was working out a plan that was much bigger and greater he was fulfilling his covenant promises to Abraham. And what we find that, that in Abraham, all the world, all the peoples of the world would be blessed. And, and the beauty is that through this, this unbelief of the Jews who at, at one point, one part of the week, they're singing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And within a week's time, they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. He takes their unbelief and he uses his, their unbelief and he uses it at the cross so that the, the wrath of God might be poured out upon Jesus so that we might be saved. That's the beauty of God's plan. And so why? I don't understand why. But what I do know, God reveals to me, and we as the people of God are meant to express that and to witness to that and to give that to our children and to all those who would hear. But we also see that one of the root causes of unbelief is found in um, John chapter 12, verses 41 and 42. Now look at this. Like, the reason that some of the Jews would not believe, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but. So there was this intellectual understanding. There was, yes, we believe that he might be. We believe in the resurrection of Lazarus. We see that the, the eyes of the man born blind, are, are, he can see. But, in verse 42, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And why is that? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see, they feared man more than they feared God. They loved men and the praise of men more than they loved the glory of God. Again, fear, in the biblical sense, 
includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your trust in people, or needing people. You see, the the fear of the Lord means that I fear you not. I'm in awe of the Lord. I need the Lord. I trust in him. I'm in awe of his salvation. And the struggle with these people, and again, we don't know anybody like this, right? We don't know anybody in our life that might fear man more so than fear God, right? I mean, this does, this, this ancient book has nothing to teach us about this, right? Obviously, I'm, I'm being cynical or uh, sarcastic there. The reality is that we continue to struggle with this. We, we struggle with this um, in a way that is so deep that, that we allow, um, you know, put it like this, um, we fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. We fear people because they can reject, ridicule, or despise us. We fear people because they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. These three reasons have one thing in common. They see people as bigger, that is more powerful and significant than God. And out of the fear that creates in us, we give other people the power and the right to tell us what to feel, what to think, and how to act. I take that from um, Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, Overcoming Peer Pressure and Codependency and the Fear of Man. You know, when we think about the fear of the Lord, Proverbs has a lot to say about it. You know, fear of the Lord. What, what, what does that mean exactly? You know, Proverbs tries to woo us with the fear of the Lord. It tries to make the fear of the Lord as attractive as possible. Those who fear the Lord will fear nothing else in, verse, in chapter 19. The fear of the Lord adds length to life in chapter 10. It is, it is a secure fortress for the one who fears and for his or her children. It is a fountain of life. It brings honor, and it should be praised when we see it. What does the fear of the Lord look like? It, look like? it looks like loving good and hating evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. It looks like trusting God and obeying him. You see, the fear of the Lord is a blessing. You see, if, you, if we feared the Lord, just imagine what it would be like to truly hate sin, first our own and then the sins of others. What would happen to marital fights? They would be almost impossible. Spouses would be too busy listening and asking forgiveness for their own selfishness. What about the little cliques in the schoolyard? They would be telling good stories about somebody else. What about when someone sins against us? We would no longer have to murder the person in our own heart. Instead, we could cover the sin in humility and love, or we could confront the other person in the same spirit of loving courage. If we actually embraced the fear of the Lord, but because we fear man, and again, what what you have fear of controls you. I mean, little kids, you see this, right? Like they have a fear of the dark. And they can't act or do anything unless there's a nightlight on. Or if people have, you know, a fear of, you know, snakes or heights or other things, whatever you fear has control over you. Right? We fear the Lord. Now, where does this love of the glory of God lead us? It leads us to salvation. But where does this love of self-glory leads us, lead us to? It leads us to judgment. When we look at John chapter 12, 44, 
Jesus says, and, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And we get that, that John has this picture of light and darkness over and over again, but he actually uses this other image, and he uses this other image uh, along with light, and it's the one of being a judge. We see this when he says in verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. Now, this is a little, um, it's, it's really hard for us to understand right here, because in one sense, Jesus says, I didn't come to judge you, I came to save you. And yet he says, but there is a judge out there, and the judge is the word that I give to you. So you're like, well, Jesus, is it your word judging us? But it seems like, and, and the reality is, here's the deal. First time Jesus comes, he comes to save. Second time Jesus comes, he comes to judge and put back everything that is broken. And so what Jesus is saying here is that there is a judgment coming. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And I speak it, and the authority that I have is coming from the Father. If you believe in me, and I think what he's saying in verse 50, and I know that his commandment is eternal life, he's recalling verse 44, whoever believes in me has eternal life. But if you do not believe the words that I have given, if you do not believe the actions and the signs that I have given, then you stand in judgment. And the reality is this, is that there will be a judgment day. We will have one. You see, the world is not cyclical. The world is linear in the sense that we will, as it began, so it will end, and we will have a judgment day. But I was struck this week as I was studying for this text and thinking about judgment, um, and, and one of the guys who really helped me um, understand the blessings of this idea of judgment, especially as it relates to the world, is a guy named Tim Keller. And many of you know that Tim Keller is now in glory. Tim Keller was a PCA pastor for many years in Manhattan, uh, and a week ago Friday, uh, uh, came to, to cancer and entered into the glory of, uh, with Jesus. And he's a public figure, and so what I'm, what I'm going to say is, um, taken from Tim Keller, here's what he has to say. He says, you know, certainly, when Jesus, when we read about the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus, he shall come to judge the living and the dead, and there is a judge History is not cyclical, but is linear. And here's what we see, that we need, and the culture and the world needs to believe in judgment. That's what Keller said. Okay, Keller said, the world desperately needs to believe in judgment. And he says, there's two secular authors, or one secular author, and then one Christian author. And here's what he has to say. He says, and, and this is why you know this is Keller, because he's always quoting like playwrights and other people, and he's always quoting, he, he reads more than anybody else uh, has ever read, I think. But he says this about Arthur Miller, a playwright, uh, your death of a salesman playwright. He, he wrote a play called After the Fall. And he says this, 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 player, this, this character in his play is Quentin. His name is Quentin. And Quentin is speaking, and he says this. He says, for years, I looked at life as a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are, how smart you are. Later, how great a lover you are. Later, how good a father you are, how good a husband you are. As you continue on, you begin to um, have these uh, litigations with yourself saying how wise you are and how successful you are. He says, I see now that in all my arguing, 
that there was a presumption toward moving towards an upward path, an elevation, that I would be justified by what I have done. My disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. All that remained, I realized, were the endless arguments, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which is another way of saying I was filled with despair. See, now this is a a secular man who never believed in Jesus, and he said, throughout my life, I have to justify myself before someone. And then when I realized that there was no judge, what happened was I realized that all the pointless litigation that I had in my life was for nothing. You see, what Arthur Miller is saying there through this character, see, see, giving up on the idea of heaven heaven and hell, he felt liberated until one day he looked up and he realized that no one was on the bench. His endless, meaningless litigation, arguing with, what, with himself. It is better, you know, think about this. It is, you know, we do that. It is better to be unselfish than to be selfish. It is wrong to exclude and trample down weak groups and keep them out of power. It is better to be faithful to friends. There is no one on the bench of the universe. There was no one to judge, and he realized that there was no meaning. There is no way that you can say that one action is better than another. Besides, in the end, it will all burn up anyway. You see, he was liberated, Arthur Miller was, by saying that there was no judge, but he was placed in total darkness and gloom and meaninglessness. Nothing that you will do matter. It won't make any difference. You see, no judgment day means that you live in darkness and despair and that any action is equitable against another action. There's no wrong. There's no right. There's no judge giving a determination. And what that leads to is despair. Secondly, I thought this one was fascinating. And it's by a Croatian philosopher, theologian, Miroslav Wolf, or Wolf. And he says this, there's no meaning individually, like in Quentin's character of, in, in um, the book, um, The Fall, but there's also no hope socially without an eternal judge. You see, Miroslav Wolf, he said the superficial myth of judgment, he says this, if you have a judging God, and this is what people would say, if you have a judging God, you will be an aggressive, warlike person. And the spiting of other people, a vengeful person, if you believe in a judging God, you are going to become someone who attacks and who is imperialistic. And then and, and Miroslav Volf says, oh yeah? Really, you think that? He says this, he says, in a, in a book he wrote called Exclusion and Embrace, he said this, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Let me say it again. He said, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. And he says, my thesis will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West, who might advocate for a God who is non-judgmental. To the person who is inclined to dismiss my thesis, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered and then burned and leveled to the ground. 
whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture that you are giving is this, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is, perfect, is a perfect, non-coercive love. Soon, you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the modern secular mind. You see, what he's saying there, he's saying that if you don't believe that God is a God of judgment, that you will be sucked into endless cycles of violence until you realize that there's some sense of justice. For example, what are you going to say to someone when they have been wronged? What type of society will we have? The only thing that will stop from one who has been a victim and that there is no judge and no one who has done something despicable and wrong is that there is a God in heaven who will judge. How do we as believers deal with all of the injustice around us. In one sense, we can say there is an ultimate judge who will judge them. If we don't believe that there's an ultimate judge who will bring judgment to bear, then we will be left with vigilante justice. And that is, that leads to chaos. Now, he said this, um, Keller said this too. He said, um, if we have, he said 90% of people today believe that there won't be a judgment day. He was talking about New York City at this point. He was saying, you know, 90% of the people I re- recognized go, we don't believe in a judgment day. And he said through Arthur Miller as well as Miroslav Wolf, this is what he said, if, um, if we haven't gotten rid of that, we are left with meaningless despair or angry despair. And so why aren't you left with meaningless despair or angry despair in the midst of your life, not thinking about a judgment? And he says two things. He says, you either haven't been thinking or you haven't really been wronged by somebody else. You are defenseless, and those who insist that there is no judgment day are living as if there is a judgment day. Now, Speaking about this judgment day that is coming, and speaking about the necessity of a judgment day, for those of us in Christ, we've already had our judgment day. When was our judgment day? Our judgment day was at the cross. You see, all of our sins, all of our misdeeds, all the things that we break in terms of thought, word, and deed, All of our wrongs against God are dealt with on the cross at Calvary. You see, Jesus takes all of those sins upon himself so that we might be redeemed, that we might be free to love and to pursue peace and to bring the message of peace to those who are struggling. Now, there's a passage that I'd never seen before in this way. But in Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, it says this. I love this passage, um, and I'd never seen it like this way. Ed Clowney uses it in this way. The people of Israel 
at this point are in the wilderness wanderings in the, the book of Exodus. And all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go, behold, and this is the deal. Here's the deal. This is significant. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. It is the only place in Scripture where the Lord stands before men so that they might actually, he's basically standing um, as the accused, and he allows himself to stand as the accused before men. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, think about this. The Lord is on the rock. What did Moses strike? He struck the rock. He's striking the Lord. And upon striking the rock, out of the rock came streams of living water. This is a picture of of what Jesus does for us on the cross. Because when Jesus was stricken for us, it opened up a way for us to be reconciled to God. And by believing in Jesus, we are tasting the everlasting eternal water. And he says, come to me and drink deeply. And if you drink, you will be satisfied. Now, in the midst of this, let me conclude. I'm, I'm wrapping this up here. In the, in the midst of this, as we think about judgment, judgment for our sins, judgment in this world, the need to have an eternal judge who will actually bring about um, an understanding of wrong and right, but also allow us to, to live and to pursue nonviolence because we know that someone will eventually judge all of the wicked deeds. Think about where you live. We live in a day and an age where we are the most judgmental people on the planet. Think about it. You're evaluated on your looks, on your money, your academic degrees, what you're producing, what you're adding value to, on your waistline, on your clothing, on your references. We are living in the midst of the most judgmental age ever. And if we allow ourselves to be ruled by the fear of man, we will be in an endless place of being judged and feeling very fearful in our lives. But if we embrace the gospel, if if we realize that you are absolutely loved and forgiven, then you can say that I'm broken and my sin is deep. You can be honest about your flaws And you can know that you are loved and valued and taken care of. And you can know that the judge of the universe actually stepped out of his bench 
and came down in the docket and took upon himself the, the punishment that was for you. You can say, you know what? Yeah, I'm broken. I'm flawed. But I'm loved and I'm redeemed. That's good news. As we think about the Heidelberg Catechism a couple weeks ago, I know that we said this when question 52, how does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? How does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? And the answer is this, in all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and remove the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. When we come to the table, this is a table that symbolizes the judgment of God upon our sins. See, this bread represents the body of Christ broken for you. And this cup represents his blood shed for you. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And what we find is that the judgment that you deserve falls upon Jesus. So that when we come to this table, we go, we are not people under judgment anymore but rather the price has been paid and that we are free to live in the enjoyment and joy and grace and mercy and love of our Savior. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, from the night that I received this, here's what he says. Of course, if, if I just I have it memorized, but I, I always feel like I'm going to mess it up. That's because I feel like I'm under judgment, right? <laughs> I shouldn't feel that way. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also we took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when you come for, forward for the table, we proclaim that there is no judgment. The judgment has already happened for us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are grateful for the way that you separate these elements. And Father, that they will always remain bread and this will always remain uh, fruit of the vine, juice. But Father, we pray, Lord, that we would know Jesus deeply, that you would bless us with a deep faith. And Father, we would know that the judgment for our sins has been paid and that we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Father, would you pour forth grace upon grace upon your people in such a way that we believe and trust in you more and more and more. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would not fear man, but that we would fear you, for there is great joy in fearing you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.